Coming up, Rob Schneider joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hello, everyone. It's Ileana Douglas. Welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. I am here with my lovely co-host, Tamara Berg. Hi, everybody. Looking just swell today. Thank you. What did Paulina Portskova, oh, who is keeps threatening to be on our show? Oh my gosh! What, what did she say? She, God she bless just her. Did a, she just did a shoot for the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. Yes. And um, yeah, someone said to her, she's fifty-one, I believe. Is that right? Fifty-one, fifty-four, so. or something like that. Yes. And uh, someone said to her, "You look really good for your age." And she said, "That is not a compliment." No. And I would like to concur on that. Yeah. I always think that sometimes when I'm, you know, I'm at Trader Joe's and they're being like super, super nice to me. And then I think it's because they think I'm old. An old lady. They're just helping me. Let's hope, let's help that old actress down the, down the aisle. Yeah. Help her find her walnuts. Help with your bags. Um, okay. So much yes. to talk about this week. Uh, I'm freaking out. We've got Rob Schneider on the show. I know. It's fun. I know. Uh, well, you know, the 90s are coming back. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's so funny is the, the, I did the CNN doc about the movies. And there yes. Was a, there was a whole, there was a whole subject line about, you know, the great movies of the 90s. Isn't that funny? It's, it's odd. I'm finally a category. Okay. <laughs> um, I had the pleasure. I didn't think I was going to get to talk about this. Can't talk about it too much. Right. But please, uh, uh, in in July, I had the opportunity to interview Jane Fonda. Oh, my God. She's so cool. I love it when you interview Jane Fonda. Yes. Because you always come back with good stories. She's she's an icon. She, yes, is, she is our era's Elizabeth Taylor and more because she's just done so much in movies and activism and she's just super cool and she looks s astonishing at 81 yes um inter so i interviewed jane fonda for the criterion collection uh they are re-releasing re clute oh right the okay. movie looks incredible mm -hmm. uh she has all sorts of great insights on the film and the other thing is, again, if you're not already doing it, I am. Uh, who else out there has got Criterion streaming? I don't leave my house anymore. I've got. <laughs> I am obsessed with the Criterion Channel, the streaming, because um, the, the they not only have the great foreign films and right. Agnes Varda and lots of curated films. But uh, they're, they're going to be doing old movies, too. So there's a, a whole the section that I'm obsessed, as everybody knows, through Twitter is, uh, oh, my God, the Columbia Noir Collection. Oh, my. Which includes films like The Big Heat uh, and Human Desire. So far, that's my favorite. Pushover, which was Kim Novak's first film. Wow. Um, just some great, great films. And uh, it's been Experiment in Terror, Blake Edwards, just this whole really, really interesting uh, era of films, late 50s into the early 60s. 
Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the at the site right now to see what all they've got. Columbia they look, Noir, yeah. They look beautiful. They sound beautiful. You know, Columbia is uh, a studio we don't kind of know. So you know, we know so much about MGM or right. uh, Paramount. And Columbia is very in, interesting uh, studio. When you look at it, some of the people they had there, Glenn Ford, uh, Kim Novak, Rita Hayworth, wow. uh, run by Harry Cohn. And because they were not sort of, it's like being one of the smaller agencies, you know, they weren't one of the big studios. They had an opportunity to be more experimental, I think. And so these Columbia Noirs, for me, are kind of a revelation. The whole channel is, uh, there's just such a great variety, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be, um, uh, this is my second time, I think, doing something. No, third time doing something right. with Criteria, and they released uh, Ghost World, a couple other films. Right. And uh, Allison Anders and I, are we're going to be campaigning, if anyone wants to help us, to, ha to get Criterion to do, now that I know that the 90s, is an actual film category. Yes. Let's get Grace of My Heart re-released. Yes. Through the Criterion Collection. Oh my gosh. Now we're going to talk to Rob Schneider, and he's going to—I'm sure again—he's going to spend. He's going to talk about how he spends life, people coming up to him, and it's always wonderful and flattering. And out of all the movies that I have done in my entire career, the one that the most that people want to talk about is Grace of My Heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm still friends with. Allison Anders. Yes, she's she's been here on the podcast. She's great, and we talk, and we talk about our lives and our every how everything is going and our movie making. And uh, when I hear some, I hear hubbub outside. Oh my god! I hear hubbub. I have a. What is happening? What's, what's happening? What's happening on the show? Wait, we're being kidnapped. It's happening. It's like it's like King of Comedy. I will get in here. Let me tell you, I'm glad you're in a dangerous neighborhood. So nice to see you. What a pleasure this is. Let me tell you, sit down and such an honor. Can I turn this thing around, or is it perfectly where it is? It was perfect the way it was. Let me just tell you, I'm glad. I, I know you guys are saving money have, having this kind of neighborhood out here. I just want to make sure whatever's stripped out of my vehicle, <laughs> it's well worth it. I'm such there's, an honor to be here. There's a very nice, uh, yeah, there's a very nice car shop down the... Um, yeah. I think they're about to get some new Maserati parts. Um, would you like me to... I can introduce you. That's Let's right. Do it. I don't need it. Yeah, I'm you, not needy anymore. You, you aren't? You're I'm need. on the other side of my career at this point, let's be honest. No, no, no. God bless no. you. No, you missed the beginning part of the intro. I did? What the, did I miss? Because I was saying that I did this CNN documentary, and movies from the 90s are now at, oh my goodness. Are, are now considered a category. Isn't <laughs> oh that funny? God. That's so amazing. So, like, in the 2000s, when people say, well, you haven't done a movie since the 90s, and now... I'm being asked about all the great films I did in the 90s. They were, the 90s were fun. First of all, I, I wish somebody would have pulled us aside and said, hey, listen, this is like the gay 20s. You should enjoy this more. <laughs> it's going to get really bad in about 20 years. You won't be able to go anywhere. You won't be able to get drunk in public anymore. Remember when you used to be able to get drunk? You used to be able to go down in Hollywood. You can get as effed as up. Can we swear on this thing? No. no you can, used to, to be as effed up as F'd you can up. imagine and just be, and then, you know, go home with whatever persuasion you were looking for. Yes. And then no one would, it wouldn't be like no one had a photograph of it. 
Nobody it, cared. It, it wouldn't. It, yes, you just the only person who cares the person that you were with at the time. Who twenty years later may come out and say something else that happened. But but it couldn't the, be corroborated. Yes, there was. It was all. That's what I like. That's why when my comedy shows now, I want it to be your word against mine, <laughs> mother effer. I want no. I want no actual evidence. That's what I want, and and, and my whole life. What about location too? Was yes. It, oh, location was so much fun. Well, those were the times. You know, the thing about it was like, um, you know, uh, somebody should have said, also save your money. Somebody should have said that to me. Uh, don't get married three times. Somebody should have said that to me. But, but my last well, one, I'm very happy now. Three times? My last one. But in Hollywood, oh. that's like one. Let's be honest. Yeah. In Hollywood, that's like, that's like a, you know, the first one's like. A, in the old days, I mean, Mickey Rooney was married like eight times. He was. He, he got, <laughs> well, you know what? Those guys didn't date. They Aren't married. Aren't fascinated, though? When you look at Mickey, like I was watching Mickey Rooney. I was saying I'm obsessed with these Columbia noir movies, and Mickey yeah. Rooney was an amazing actor. But he was very small, and he was yeah. very popular with ladies. Well, in 1937, said, you know, 1937, I was a big, you know, the Dana Carvey has a great routine about him. He does. He, he did a TV series with him. In 1937, I was the number one star in the world. <laughs> number one. Bang, you hear me? Two years later, I called Jack. I, 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 two years later, I was broke. I called Jack Warner on the phone, and he hung up on me. Bang! You hear me? So, but uh, I saw him walking through a thing. He was like the biggest star in the world when he was seventeen. Yes. So he was still alive in his nineties. I'm sorry. Yes. You know, you hear about guys who are like five foot two would live to be a hundred. You don't. Yeah. You know what you never hear? The seven foot three basketball player turned a hundred today. <laughs> the heart's got to do a lot more work. I'll be honest, Ileana. At that point, when you're a midget, basically like I am, heart does less work. Live longer. Okay, while you sit there, I am going to do, I, I mean, so many movies. God, I don't know where to begin with you. Of course, uh, Saturday Night Live, but uh, Deuce Bigelow, Mel Gigolo, The Hot Chick, Men Behaving Badly. we got to talk about that. Well, thank you. Friends with Justine Bateman. Um, those were fun times. Those were fun times. You Rob, know, I, I don't know Rob. if they'd let you do that anymore. I, I, yeah. I don't know if you can do like, I mean, first of all, how we're come I can't play different this. nationalities? Oh, is How that? Come I oh. can't play? I'm only Fil I'm Filipino. My mom's Filipino. My dad's yeah. like an albino German. Am I only going to play those roles? I mean, can I play like, I mean, no, you're not. That's cultural appropriation. I tweeted my paella, a picture of my paella, and 750,000 people in Spain got angry. How dare you appropriate? I said, didn't you appropriate, like, you're Spain. Didn't you appropriate, like, half the world before 1566 in the Spanish Armada? What are we talking about here? Didn't you appropriate uh, South America? But we're in a weird, very reactive place. And here's my theory. Yes. If I can tell, tell it, well, my I'm theory is. It. Comedy my, theory. My we're theory is people aren't more angry. They're just the few a-holes that are angry just have access to immediate outrage to express immediate outrage. They have access to express their immediate outrage. And then other people, normal people like us, yeah. will say, should we be angry? Maybe we should be. Maybe we should. What are they angry about? I don't want them to be angry at us because we're not angry. Okay, then screw those people. What was this about again? So that's what it is. Okay, well, I, here's, I have a theory. I was what, listening to NPR this morning, and they were talking about all these, you know, sex shows, and they had a psychiatrist on, and they were saying, you know, the most important thing is, you know, when you're dealing with children, you, they should never be ashamed or embarrassed or, you know, and I was like... No, if if we're not ashamed and embarrassed, like with, that would I wouldn't have anything funny. Like my whole, <laughs> I mean, my whole childhood was about, you know, 
embarrassing being ashamed <laughs> and embarrassed yes. by my by things my parents did or things that happened to me. I and that do was the feel, basis I of do, all the humor. I'm going to write that down because I think you're right. And I, I'm going to use it on my stand-up back and not give you credit. Oh. You know, hear me tell you about this. No, what it oh, is, yeah. I think everything is too... Everything now, you have to tell your kids, that's amazing. You're yeah. incredible. So they grow up with, I am amazing. That's incredible. And they're not. They're not that. I mean, you have to say, like, hey, listen, like, you know, because I grew up with, like, no, put that down. What are you doing? Now it's like, no, that's great. You're incredible. That's so good. Like, my, my little daughter, because I've, I've, this is the second wave of kids coming now. Um, <laughs> look that at sounds that. very showbiz. Oh, I know, I know. Excuse me, I got to take this. You know, uh, <laughs> it, is, it actually is my agent. But, you know, it's so funny. There's <laughs> so sick. few, so few times it's actually true. But, but anyway, uh, so, um, no, but it's like, it, it's, I have to, my, 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 my six year old, she picks up a guitar and says, you know, you got to take lessons. She goes, no, I really know how to play. Oh, come on. And I was like, no, you don't. And I want to say, no, you don't know how to play. You're just making noise. It's not noise. Not, yeah, but, but like, you got to go, oh, yeah, no, that's really beautiful. That's great. And she's like making like, you know, noise. And so you just, it's a gentler, kinder thing. And I know that it's better and I get it. And I'm all for the Me Too movement until it comes near me. But I'm all for it. But I do think that I think there's a lack of reality. And I think like, I, you know, I remember in the late 60s, you remember like, you know, your, your parents, they knew that hitting was out back then. But the option was always there. Oh no, we were we did my I do this all the time. When we were sitting in the car, my father would like hit, hit Joan, he'd go, Joan, hit the kids. I can't reach them. Hit them. You there was know, an we, option. But I agree like that my parents knew not to hit kids anymore. In the sixties, late sixties, early seventies, they knew that was like out. You know, that because there was like get a kid that belt out. Well, there was a kid named Manzinus. I think his name was Mazinus. <laughs> he was a Greek family, Mazinus, and like uh Ted. Mazinus. I don't know why the hell I'm saying his name. But, like, I just remember, like, he used to, the Ted used to hit his kid. And, like, like, like I mean, not, not just, a, like, a little, you know, an arm shot. Like, my dad would, my brother and I one time were arguing over a leftover steak. My dad was, like, on the phone. He had, like, his, his office at the house, which was, like, a huge mistake. He got rid of that quickly. We were arguing over a piece of steak. My brother was, like, a, a he, he was born a thief. He basically, like, <laughs> he would eat an ice cream. And I go, oh, there must be ice cream. So I go in and look for the ice cream in the freezer, and there wouldn't be any ice cream. And I go, oh, the round, he got the last one. Then I'd see him five minutes later with another ice cream. I guess you mother effer, you're hiding food, aren't you? So I'd look and I'd dig underneath the, you know, the ice trays and everything. And he'd be hiding ice creams underneath there. So one thing, so he's grabbed a steak and I, you know, so I, I always had it in for him. So he grabbed a, a leftover steak from the dinner the night before. And then um, he starts digging into it. And I said, give me half of that. He said, no, it's mine. I saw it first. Yeah, but you're always hiding food. So we're like literally fighting over a steak. And my dad's on the phone doing some business call, trying to rent a house or whatever he did. And, um... If I, kids, keep it down. Keep it down. Damn it. You keep it. I'm going to tell. I'm going to come over there. I'm, I'm going to tell you one more time. And he just put the phone. Excuse me for a second. Put the phone up and whacked us each in the arm. And the, the result from that was like, okay, you can have it. No, you can have it. It calmed down the situation. Yeah. Now that without that hit, I think we're like a society without that calming influence of a good slug. The uh, Okay, I want to go back. we got so much to cover. Uh, you, did you grow up in San Francisco? Yeah, San Francisco. And do you remember the first movie um, you went to see? Well, the, the, you know what that's interesting. But uh, literally on my birth certificate, which I found recently, it said "Mother Oriental, Dad, <laughs> Dad White." So that's wow. out these days, you know. 
Wow. Orientals. Like they used to be like the word. You used to, if you, you call an, if you yeah. call somebody an Oriental now, you're gonna get punched in the face. Yeah. But if you call somebody, you know, uh, if you called somebody an African American back in the early '60s, you get punched in the face. So it's like it's a different era now. The first movie, my parents didn't have babysitters. They didn't want to spend any money <laughs> that they didn't want to spend. So they would drag us to see the movie. So I saw like literally the Planet of the Apes when I was five. If Love you, it. it was horrifying. <laughs> He's like, you know, Charlton Heston, I remember, you know, Charlton Heston from the Ten Commandments, which I was on every every Christmas, every Seder, yes. you know, there's yeah. Ten Commandments. And then, you know, he's a Christian, but he's a Jew. He's a Jew, he's a Christian. You know, Ten Commandments, you know, uh, yeah. you know uh, Burr. Be, what's, yeah. what's the... Um, Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, yeah. 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 Judah. Judah, Judah Ben-Hur, right. Yeah. And then, uh, so I'm watching that, and then all of a sudden he's on a horse, and all of a sudden he's like, I'm going to, you know, in, in 20, in three months, we're going to be running this planet. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> like, oh my God, there's apes! And it's like, and they shot that in Malibu. By the way, just on a on a string budget, you know. Yes. And then I luckily was able to meet you know the great Charlton Heston, who got such <sighs> a bad rap, you know, because he was for pro guns, but he was also very progressive. He marched with Martin Luther King in 1961. Yeah. He doesn't get credit for that though. If you go against the liberals, they're gonna get you forever, you know. So anyway, but he was a great guy, and he said, "Yeah, they made that movie, and the only <laughs> the only reason they made that is because I took a chance on it, and I liked the script." He did a lot of interesting indie movies. Yeah, because he was a big star. Yeah, he made that was a weird little movie. Yeah, and then he also made like Soylent Green. He did all this cool stuff. You so, know? Soylent Green is incredible. He fought to get um, Orson Welles. No, no, he he fought to get the uh, you know the guy uh, uh, you know uh, what's his name Edward, Robinson Edward G. Robinson. Edward, see, nah. he, he fought to get him the role. See, nah, because um, <laughs> the director Sessy, he called him Sessy. Cecil B. the Mill. Sessy, and I'm trying to go Sessy. Yeah, I know who Sessy is. I'd look it up Sessy later. And, 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 and back then there was no internet. Back then you had to have an encyclopedia or an assistant or someone checking it out for you. But I figured out Sessy was Cecil B. the Mill. So I had to talk to Sessy and say, <laughs> Sessy, I know he's right for this role. It'll be Edward G. Robinson. And he said, uh, but uh, Edward G. Robinson is that uh, kind of that Rico guy. He said, so the whole movie, he was trying to not do Rico. So if you ever notice, he's talking like this. Because if he starts talking faster, see, he's not talking like Rico. See, <laughs> nah. 1930s gangster, see, nah. Nah. Well, you were obviously, so you saw Planet of the Apes, but I mean. Something, and then, then like the same year. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Also, 1968 was an incredible movie. 67 was kind of like at the beginning of the new wave. Because right. I guess when the movie studios, when the studio system collapsed, they literally was like, we don't know what to do. And anytime something collapses, like what's happening right now, there's a chance for sneaky movies to get into great movies. Right. So you had Bonnie and Clyde, the first time ever, a major motion picture where both characters, both leads, get murdered in the end. Both get yeah. shot to pieces. And that was the ending. I said, that's the ending? That's what we're going to do? But I thought the Hollywood thing, the thing about Hollywood is to give people a happy ending. You know, which was, so it was a very unique time. So that these, these great, um, well, I guess the wrong word is auteur, but these these filmmakers. No, they were. Arthur Penn was a, you they, know. They were, but you can't say Arthur Penn, that was his idea. That was Warren Beatty's driven movie. He got Arthur Penn to be part of it. But right. I'm saying, so you'd have these people, so I think that word is used, because it really is a collaborative, it's a driven from somebody's specific vision, be it a producer, be it a, be an, an actor who can find the own the work, be it a, a director who can craft something. But it, if you're lucky to get a great cinematographer like they had, mm-hmm. was it Conrad Hall who did that? I think so. Yes, and or then great the, editor, and then you had a really great editor, and then you had like people doing their best work at the best time of their lives, and a really interesting director who was really who was able to tell a story, and then and and just and you have actors, and they're beautiful actors in their prime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the great things about um, you know uh, you know John um, the great uh, you know Maltese Falcon John, John Houston. Houston, you know, was in his autobiography. 
uh, Jack Warner said uh, he was doing a movie with Catherine Hepburn, and they said um, he took him to see they, they saw dailies with uh, Jack Warner, and Jack said, um, "You see that right there? You see her, her the track of her tears? It's looking like it's coming from her nose. You got to fix that." <laughs> and he said, uh, "Mr. Warner, said, it's, it's going to be hard for me to change. I mean, that she's just crying. It's hard. I don't know if I can change the track of her tears." And he said, "Let me tell you something, young man. We're in the business. We do one thing: shoot beautiful people beautifully." If you can't do that, you can't work in this business. She said, I'll figure it out, sir. I'll do it. <laughs> that sounds, so you were like, a, I didn't know you were a big movie lover. I love movies. Well, I mean, what else you got? I mean, what else is there? There's great food. There's great cinema. There's great music. I mean, when you, yeah. you, there's, you know, there's some cool old cars. Once you kind of, you come back to that, the thing about like, you know, I guess the old saying is if Shakespeare was alive, did he want to make movies? Because you got music, you got lights, you have a camera, you can paint something. Right. You have actors, you can edit it, you can put it together, get rid of the parts you don't like. That's, that's the thing about Hitchcock, you know, as he said in his, I guess it's called the darker side of genius or something. Mm -hmm. He said like, movies are simply uh, life with boring parts <laughs> cut out, removed. You don't want people going to the bathroom. That would be a bit boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> so we take those parts out and make keep all the interesting parts. That's the parts that we keep and that's the movies and that's life with the boring parts cut out. Do you have... Between molesting actresses, that's what he talked about, but um, which is a shame. Yes, I know Hitchcock. He, there were certain people that you know. It, what always makes me laugh is the like they were interviewing Shirley MacLaine, and she goes, "He he didn't like me," like as if she's sort of <laughs> offended. <laughs> I said, I, "That's probably." I know, a, and actresses have told me like Harvey Weinstein. That's all I got to do is watch him watch him masturbate. That was it. I mean, I'll watch that. Oh and I, goodness! No, no, no. But I've actresses have told me that, and that's a horrible thing to say. But they told me that. Is that it? That's all I got to do. That's all I had to do. But like, I mean, but you can't even have these conversations. Like, I just did a movie for like a, the, one of the biggest entertainment company in the world, and I literally had to watch a. Uh, Sex, you know, sexual harassment video. Yes. Yes, I know. I did. You have to these yeah, days. So I, I watched that, and then the, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm very, you know, and, uh, you know. I know you can't. Why, you I can't, can't even make, go down. But the, but I was basically I hate to say this, but I was replacing an actor on a movie. Yeah. And they called me on a Wednesday to come out there. Wednesday. I swear to God, it's like, can you get on a plane now? And I, it's really. And I said, it's, it's like my wife's birthday. And I said, I'm taking her to dinner. And I said, I've missed too much. And they said, but we'll fly her and the family too. And I said, let me just talk to her. So the next thing I know, but like, you know, the, the point of the matter is. It's kind of fun when you do that, though. I've had the, it's they, the great, because they feel no like pressure. you're a hero. There's you're, no pressure. You're a hero. Yeah, you come in to like, if you just show up and you don't fall over and you're and you're not drunk, then it's like, it's all good. You know what I mean? Hey, he's sober. We love this guy. But anyway, so my point being yes. is that. Um, yeah, so I was like really tight and like you know I mean like just and and then, and then of course I get the set and I see the actors and they're all joking around doing completely obnoxiously incorrect stuff they're saying to each other. It just has to be some kind of group agree to, and like but what's true though is that there is a power imbalance. The lead of the guy every is a different power, and he sometimes and this is a weird thing. I was talking about this like with Jeffrey Rush, who's a great guy, and I have to be perfectly honest. He's in trouble in Australia right now, and it's like this is a thing, and it's happening because Australia wants to be part of the. Be politically correct and i'm all for that too however he made the mistake of like treating everybody like an equal like him and it's not because he isn't he's the guy he's the guy in power mm -hmm. and it's so treating everybody in an equal in a way in a way is not good so it's right. like that the people have to be educated too it's like hey you're not just like everybody else I remember it was like in that movie you know with um the devil's candy 
You know, it's like, you know, you know Tom Hanks is going to come check out what the... <laughs> it's very fun, great book, by the way. <laughs> Tom Hanks is going to see what it's like to be a Wall Street guy, and he walks into a place to see what it's like to be a Wall Street guy. He walks into a bunch of traders in the, on the floor, and he's like, then it's Tom Hanks! They're not going to know what it's like. Is everybody saying, hey, they're not going to act normal. This Tom Hanks is here. So there's a kind of lunacy that, that, that truthfully, truthfully has to be corrected and has to be aware of. And it's the truth of it was, you know, in, in a way, his mistake was, was, was not seeing himself in a, another position of authority by treating people equally. So it's a weird kind of thing. And that there's no gray area anymore to make mistakes. If you make mistakes, boom, you're out. And sometimes absolutely should be out. And I know. There's some creepy people that I've worked for that you've worked for. Yes. And that, like, deserve to be out. And I was like, there's no, this is just a, this is just a criminal in a position of authority using that authority. And the only thing I could say is, like, when I think about my overall vision of, like, what show business is, if I have to say what it really is, it seems to me, if I could say one of the interpretations, which is going to be my book, by the way, is that show business seems to be God's great distraction for people who would do a lot more harm, a lot worse harm, mm -hmm. if they were doing something else instead of this meaningless, insignificant thing called show business. <laughs> well, now I don't have to read the read the book. Well, and you certainly worked. We're going to get to that. My God, and I can't even on SNL too. You were that was sort of the whole bread and butter of being on SNL in the early days was everybody was wild and crazy. Well, to me, and, it was like all I remember was like we're. It was like I was there for like the fifteenth season. It was like it, was, it seemed like it was forever back then. Because when you're twenty three or twenty four, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, you, the show's been on 15 years. That seems forever. That's like more, more than half my life. <laughs> you realize how new that was at the time. So, like, basically, you know, you could still see stuff from Belushi and Bill Murray that were still in the office, you know, the whatever remnants of whatever God, God knows what they were ingesting at that time. But it was a different time because we knew that you could be famous off the show. And I don't know if the original guys knew that that was going to break, except for Chevy. He broke about, you know, six months in, you know. And uh, so we saw, like, if, you know, you're making 750 bucks a week or whatever, but if you got a movie or something, if you get a hit thing, it yeah. like, exploded. You know, you can have on a – I remember uh, I was, like, subletting a place and taking care of somebody's cat when I was first hired as a writer on Saturday Night Live. And the next thing you know, you know, I was um, – you know, I had, I had, like, a backyard. And that's when you know you made it in Manhattan, when you have, like, a tree and a place for your, your wow. dog to take a dump outside on your own property in your apartment. They go, wow, I've made it, you know. So it was fun. You know, and you're a kid. You don't even know if you're in show business. And then all of a sudden, you're inside in your life. Maybe I'm in. Then you leave. Maybe I'm out again. I don't know, you know. <laughs> well, that was pretty. When I first met you many, many years ago, I think you were a writer. I don't think you were on the show. But I was a little bit on the show at that time, yeah. Like, just like a little, little Just bit. like a few weeks beforehand. And I saw you, and I, I really, and I saw you in Cape Fear, and I thought you were charming and hilarious, which is like, you know, it's fun to see, like, someone has, like, a, you know, that, that has... It's not culturally benefiting for, for, for women to be hilarious. You know what I'm saying? It was like it was always another kind of – it wasn't like – there's a Lucille ball, but, like, there wasn't a, a real avenue. So whenever you see, like, an actress is naturally funny and bringing that to a role that's not on the page, like, I guarantee you – Yes. It was not on the page in Cape Fear for no. you to be funny. There was nothing on the page. It made a career. We're very similar in that way. Yeah. I read – when I was reading notes about you – a lot of the times you were told by a director, oh, you're going to do, don't worry about it. You'll, <laughs> I, me too. Yeah, you'll make it funny. I, I go, you know, I've gone through the script and I don't have any lines. And they go, no, 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 I know. Well, you come up with something. Adam Sandler. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. And they just like, and that's how, that's the way, that's how they got Jackie Gleason. 
They said, like, you'll make it good, Jackie. It's a game show. You get out there. What is it about? Yeah, I'll figure it out, Jackie. You're a genius. You'll make it work. And then, like, that's the way to get to us. It's We have low self-esteem, gigantic egos. How do I fit in the middle there? You'll be great. Maybe I will. And so that's how they got, like, you know, Peter Sellers, maybe the funniest guy ever. And all yeah. of a sudden, he's doing a movie called The Bobo. It's like, what? Well, you're going to be a... Uh, <laughs> what am I going to be? You're going to be a blue bullfighter. All right. But it doesn't sound funny. You'll make it funny, Peter. Peter, you're a genius. Peter, you're absolutely. Now, if anyone can make this real work, it's you, Peter. You're sensational. Everything you do is funny. He's right. Everything you do is funny. And then I you have to top funny. yourself. Yeah, and then you got to, like, we're just going to repeat the same crap over and over again. I remember they said, do you want to do a copy machine? It was a character I did back in the copy machine movie. I went, no, I can't even come up with, like, a four-minute ending. How am I going to do a movie? <laughs> an hour and a half movie? I don't want to, you know, because there's a, I, I was very cognizant of the fact early in, in my career going, like, hey, there's that guy. Right. Is really, hey, there's that guy. Is really close to, oh, there's that guy. There's that guy again. Why got to deal with that guy? Oh, my God, there's that guy again. And I feel like if you stick around long enough in show business, you go, ah, there's that guy. You know, so I feel like, you know, I remember M. Emmett Wolf talking to me about It's great because if we work with older actors who have been around, they give you like oh. a. Yeah, he's been around a long time. You get great stories. Mm -hmm. that's, 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 I mean, the title of my book, you only get to keep stories. Just a little. No one knows that now, but now, okay. now it's out in the no, world. I, I own that. So um, he was telling me like. Uh, you know what the best thing to do? He said, uh, if you're an actor, basically, you just um, you get like a, you have your original portrait, which is you, and you get like a, a hundred serographs. And I'm going, where's this conversation going? <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. Every time you appear in something, it's another serograph. So every time you appear on something, every time you whatever, you're like, you know, and I said, you got to be careful because when you're done, and then you, you should, the idea is to retire with 10 of the serographs in the original painting, you know. And I went, okay. So, like, you know, when Tom Cruise jumped up and down the couch, that was like 20 frickin' serographs he burned right there. People get sick of you. He just, whatever. There's no, there's no mystery anymore, which is true with the social media. You have to do it. It's like, you know. So uh, there's something interesting, you know, and it's like, I love to work with these old. I got to work with him, Henry Gibson, David Carradine, and like, you know, him and David Carradine being around, just listening to those stories. It was like, that was better than the movie to me. And um, I remember M.M. Walsh told me one of my favorite stories. He just got, got done. M.M. Walsh, which is like in the first Coen Brothers, the first Coen Brothers movie, Blood Simple. Mm -hmm. uh, he was amazing in that. Just an incredible actor, you know. And he came in to me with, for a movie, Big Stan, and he came dressed as the character. And I said, God, you have to, I, 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 you can have the role. I didn't know he came in character dressed like, yeah. And so, um, and um, he was telling me stories that I, I worked with David Carradine uh, back in uh, the late 60s. Back <laughs> in the late 60s, there was, a, there was a restaurant called the 21 Club. And if you're an actor, of any significance, if any, that's where you would go, and uh, that's where the that the actors that was there, the, the Twenty One Club. So I just got back from uh, from Rome, and I sauntered into the Twenty One Club, and who was to be at the head table? It was the great John Carradine, and so I sauntered up to him, and I said, um, "Mr. Carradine, uh, it's an honor to meet you. I just wanted to let you know I just worked with your son David in Italy." So have a seat, young man. Tell me about the picture. And so I was telling him about the picture, and then I felt it was only, uh, uh, he's very generous, and I felt like I should only ask him, so, so tell me, Mr. Gaiden, what, what are you working on? I'm on, uh, I'm, uh, I'm playing Oliver on Broadway. And he's, I said, uh, which role? Fagin, you asshole! <laughs> it's the only, it's the only role that really, for an older person. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But it's like, oh my God, what a great story. The, um, I want to talk briefly <laughs> about um, 
I mean, being, I can imagine that being on SNL at the height of your popularity, I mean, did you ever have to pay for like a cup of coffee anywhere? I mean, what was it? I just remember like, you know, the weirdest part was to like go someplace. The, the next at day. At the height of it. Yeah. yeah, the next day to go someplace and buy some milk at the time when I was still drinking dairy before I realized I was lactose intolerant all my life. <laughs> so I went to a place right on the same street, believe it or not. And um, I was getting some milk. And in another aisle, opposite of me, I heard someone doing the character that oh, I did last God. week, not knowing that I was there. And I went, wow, it's out there. And then I went to a bar that same week, and I heard, it was, you know, pinball. I like to play pinball just to blow off some steam. And um, somebody was playing pinball, and I walked in, and they were doing the character while they were playing pinball. And I went like, wow, this has really hit a critical mass. You know, I had 11 radio stations that want to interview me the next day after I did that that character. So that the reach of the show was phenomenal. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, people want something fun and light, and then they just, um, that they can repeat. And it's just, you never know what's going to hit. And if you try to manipulate it, I just remember, yeah, I, I was laughing so hard when we were writing it. I was just crying laughing. And like I just said, if if they can just you know if you love something enough that, that it just makes you laugh, that's the only chance to really have to have that that connection to really you know to express that and, and get that through. And it's just one of those things that hit. Not everything hits, you know. That one hit. Yeah, that is certainly. And um, and that began your friendship with. Uh Adam Sandler from well, that or well or? Adam Sandler and I those are weird things so we were, you, you guys you, were together when I we met were you, young you guys comedians were, yeah yeah we were together we, we were friends before frick and frack yeah we were together before SNL and uh, it's not sexual but not yet but we're still keeping that open <laughs> but it was like before SNL there, he was in New York and I did there was this thing called Comedy USA which is like a cover and on the cover that was Adam Sandler and Chris Rock and I'd heard about those guys because you hear about that and they heard about me I got on David Letterman before either of those guys and that was the thing at the time that was the showcase if you got on David Letterman literally the next day I moved to Hollywood with all the stuff in the car I crashed the car by the way I somehow survived I crashed with everything in it in a real muddy area, and I didn't have any seatbelts in an old Corvair. But I survived that. I said, well, we'll see what happens. And then um, I got on SNL after doing the Young Comedian special, and then Adam and I lived literally right across the street from each other in North Hollywood, not too far from here, by the way. You know, you could hear the occasional uh, band, you know, you know, rock band, and the occasional gunfire. And, um, <laughs> and we lived there. And, um, you know, I mean, I, one time I, he was roommates with Judd Apatow, and uh, I remember one time uh, I was living with someone who kicked me out of the house. And I slept on the couch, and they said uh, he didn't give me a sheet or a, or a pillow. So you could stay here, stay right there on the couch. No blanket, no. He had one blanket and one sheet, and he was using both of them and one pillow. And uh, but I slept on the couch with my own clothes, and I stayed there for like a night or two. So we we knew each other. And when he first came out to L.A., the very first set he ever did, which was in the Improv Hilton, which was in like the Valley, which is like the dumpy place. That's the. Mm -hmm. It was like you know the the the, the expansion of the Roman Empire. It's fringes. It was someplace out in like Scotland. Well, there was a comedy empire that was spreading out at the at the fringe, basically our Ireland or Scotland, the edge of the uh, comedy empire, was like the Hilton out in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So he was performing, doing a set out there, and uh, it's like the junior, like the triple A for comedy. And then I went out there and uh, just happened to see his first set out there, and uh, the only two people really laughing really hard, you know, at him was. Me and him laughing at himself. <laughs> and after, after we had, you know, after he came off stage, I said, come on, let's go get it. I'm going to buy you a beer. And uh, I said, you're going to be huge, and I'm never wrong. And the only reason I said that is because somebody just said that to me the day before. Michael Keaton's manager had me out to lunch. You're going to be huge, and I'm never wrong. I said, that's a good thing to say to people. <laughs> and um, 
we just became instant friends. We would perform together, and then David Spade was in the you know my acting class, and it was just a uh, a group. And the next thing you know, six wait, David Spade took acting class. He did, yeah. Okay. He didn't take it seriously. I think yeah. he made it more to meet girls. Yeah, I think so. Um, but uh, I think so. But he's he's good. What kind of an acting class was this? It's Roy London's acting oh, class. Oh, Roy London, very That's famous. A, very famous. Yeah, Gary a, Shandling was a big. Gary Shandling's the reason why both of us were ended up being there. I think oh. he, I think, but um, he recommended it. And um, uh, it was you know uh, who else? Jim Carrey was taking classes. Yeah. Elizabeth Shue. Uh, Sharon Stone's Sharon a couple Stone, years before yeah. us, Jeff Goldblum, even before that. And so he had a good, you know, he was another guy. He said, you're going to be huge, and I'm never wrong. I said, I'm going to take this guy's class. Because <laughs> he saw me on Letterman, because everybody watched TV back then. It was like, you know, it was a thing. You know, you didn't have uh, as many, uh, you didn't have streaming services. Did you ever, I mean, you you went completely in the comedy uh, direction, but, I mean, I could also see you being in, like, a Coen Brothers movie. Or... I would have loved it. You know what happens is, like, I remember Peter Rieger, the great actor from Animal House and from Local Hero, and, you know, I think he was uh, played the, um, like, the, the, the Mr. Pickle, Mr. the Pickle Man in yeah. another movie. Crossing Delancey. Crossing Delancey. He's yeah. a terrific actor, a lovely guy. He did a movie with me, The Chosen One. Animal House. And Animal House, yeah. So he was Boone in Animal House. He's a great actor. He said... He said he was working in France, and they said somebody, an actress, I forget her name, said, um, "You know, Peter, if you able, if you did a movie like Local Hero, you would never, they would never stop working, because people in France, it's not like Hollywood. They want to see you do different things, you know, like Gerard Depardieu. They want to see Gerard in a, uh, you know, a Napoleon era movie. Uh, like to see him, uh, you know, in a comedy. Like to see him uh, in a, a contemporary drama with Henri uh, uh, Clouseau. So there are many things you can do, you know. I didn't understand what he was saying, but I basically <laughs> got that. But that's true, you know. In America, it's like you made money doing that. Well, then do that again. Why do you, how dare you want to do something different? So, I mean, look, I, I, honestly, like, Steve Buscemi has had a more interesting film career than me. He was a stand-up. He got out early. And in a way, the biggest blessing and the biggest curse for me was getting out of Saturday Night Live. Well, that's not a, I mean, no, it's a blessing a, and a curse. history. I think I would have made it even without it, you know. But the thing is, it just was, it was my kind of thing. And I love comedy. And there's some comedies I want to do. But it's like, you do get typecast. And it's tough, you know, if you like, you know, because it's, it's such, you know what it is. It's a miracle to make a movie. The great David Carradine, one of the nicest things any actor's ever done for me. He called me up. Uh, I, can't, I wasn't going to make that movie. Big Stan is like this. It's a nice little movie that got lost in the shuffle of uh, the overcrowded indie, indie film scene of the late, uh, the early 2000s. There was just too many indie movies. But I said David Carradine was going to play the master to teach me how to not get raped in prison. Believe it or not, that was the movie. <laughs> that the it would movie. never get made. It was originally called Unrapeable. And they ended up calling it Big. They said, we don't think we can call it that and get it released. They said, well, so Big Stan was the title. It's about a little guy who's an asshole. Excuse me again. But um, who's going to go to prison is afraid to what could happen to him in there. So he hires this guy to teach him how to be a killer so he doesn't get, you know, so that's the movie, and that was the movie I wanted to make. <laughs> that's the movie I chose to make. And, uh, but I said, I can't do it without David Carradine. He's got to be playing basically like, you know, the freshman with Marlon Brando made fun of himself. So I got to get him to do the same thing with Kung Fu. So I called uh, the lovely Quentin Tarantino, and I said, is David, how, is, well, how was he on Kill Bill? And he said, oh, he's great. Shoot him early. <laughs> and I went like, what? No, he's great. Shoot him early. And I said, okay. He didn't have to say anything more than that. But just like, you know, and I, I, I went out to lunch with David and his manager said he loved the script and he said he wants to meet with you and have lunch with you went out to lunch and I was just seeing the 
the alcoholic beverages kind of going, yes. going. And then, you know, I, I wanted to do this movie, and I wasn't going to do it without him. And I, I was like, uh, so finally I said, after like several drinks and a couple of, you know, the good dinner and entrees and, you know, appetizers and everything, I said, so, Mr. Carrion, what did you think of the script? And he looked at me and went, I haven't read it. <laughs> and I looked at his manager's manager, just basically like his eyes like crawled under the table. And, he, and then David, to break the tension, said, Tell me about it. <laughs> so I told him about the movie, and right in front of his manager, he was laughing. He said, "I'll do it." So it was, it was the greatest thing. And That's then, um, and he was wonderful. And he was great. But we had to shoot him early because he said to me, "You know, Rob, I used to be an Alcoholics Anonymous, and then I realized something." I said, "What's that, Mr. Carradine?" I like to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we, <laughs> so we only basically shot that night one night, and that was a very difficult shoot. Wow. I remember being like. Um, you know, shooting downtown. I mean, because it's this low-budget movie. You were making a movie for six million back back then. You can do it for two million now, but like yeah. back then, six million bucks was like it's all going to the union. You know, you you can triple time. I mean, God bless them. I love the unions, but it's tough. You know, they they don't give you a lot of breaks. So, um, we uh, were shooting in in the Chinatown, and we got this one night to shoot, and this is it. One night, Chinatown, one night, that's all you get. And so I would tell our crew, I said, listen, uh, I'm going to ask a crew before Mr. Carradine got there. Mr. Carradine's going to arrive in 45 minutes. Uh, we're shooting in a bar. I'm going to ask everybody, please, don't, uh, even if he wants, whatever he says, let's please not serve Mr. Carradine any, uh, any beverages this evening. <laughs> I ask everybody's uh, cooperation in that. Anyway, I go, get, I go to the cinematographer, and I start to work with them. You know, we start going over the shots and everything we're going to do for the night and everything. I come back 45 minutes later. He's behind the bar. David Carradine's behind the bar. A half bottle of vodka in. And like a half bottle, I'm like, what would you like to drink, young man? <laughs> I'm like, ah. <laughs> and it was a tough night. But he got through it, and he was still great. You know, but like, um, I think when you realize that I was never going to yell at him or get upset or anything, he'd be like, he took a little bit, you know, advantage. But like, he was still great, you know, and I loved him, and I was happy to get whatever he can get. But like, you know. Shoot yeah, the, the, get them early. Shoot them early. I feel like again, both of us went through an era where you kind of just look the other way with people. Yeah, you got what you can get, and then at the same time, you know, you're grateful for that. I mean, at the same time, yeah, you had to look the other way. But like, look, uh, you know, to, I look at like these these guys who are, who are legends, and and um, you know, I just I think you do. You have to hold them to a different, um, you know. I mean, to, to a different standard. I remember there's the sweetest thing ever. I mean, I literally wept when he died, when I heard he passed away. And um, he said to me, the nicest thing, because I'm planning my shoot, the first movie I'm ever directing. And he calls me up, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going over the, the shots for everything. We're shooting in a real prison, you know, without with real prisoners in there. It was a very difficult kind of idea, but, like, whatever. Let's just shoot it, and let's make it work. And then I'm planning out with, um, I've got a blank in the cinematographer, not lovely guy. Anyway, anyway, so... Um, we're planning our shots, going over, and I get a phone call. I go, ah, David Carradine. I see it's David Carradine on the phone. And I said, well, I better take it. Has he got a problem? Is he not going to show up? My actor, my lead actor. I got to <laughs> Hello, David, everything okay? Is everything all right? And he said, uh, Robbie, I just want to tell you something. I said, what's that, Mr. Carradine? He said, well, you know, it takes it's three miracles uh, for it to make any movie. So, uh, yeah? He said, first miracle is uh, to get it made. I go, yeah? Second miracle, is if it's any good. And, uh, yeah, third miracle is if anybody ever sees it. <laughs> so here's to the first of three miracles. Aw. And it was such a beautiful thing. It was such a, you know, that's all he wanted to say. He didn't want anything. He wasn't worried about his trailer. 
yeah. on his lunch. He didn't worry about like the money or whatever. He just wanted to make a movie, be, have fun. Well, somebody like that, I guess they've seen, you know, the kind of, um, I don't know, the ups and downs. Oh, yeah. The um, I wanted to ask you just my last question about SNL. You know, now you can watch all your routines on uh, YouTube and you yeah. can kind of rediscover. I mean, people. They, they make the show now, you know, so that more people watch it not live, but the next day they try to get how as many downloads, not downloads, but as many views on yeah. YouTube later. That That's like, that's a different thing, you know. It's almost like it's almost the the version of wait till it comes out on video, like mm -hmm. it used to be in the '90s for us. Yeah, there would it would just, you know you had to watch it live though. But that yeah. was and that was no. But I'm saying like what our movies used to be. Right. Well, we get the one wave in the theater, and the next wave will be what the, what it does on video. <laughs> That's what I mean. So it's like now it's it's the the, the wave is the, the YouTube the next day. Yeah. Isn't it? It's, I mean, it's got to be parallel. It's got to be. That's all I got. By is the way. Well, no, no. I just was sort of noticing that, and there there is not. So much an ability for people to pop, it feels like really. It's tougher to break be, through. To break through and become a star. When I think of your era of it is tougher. doing a routine. and Yeah, you could pop earlier. Than, it's still doable. You know, it's a weird thing. Is just it, doing one thing. I feel like, you know, Chris Farley doing his, his hair. Like, then yeah. he's a star. You know what I mean? Like well, one well, routine. And that puts but that was you a hell of a map. routine, Chris Farley. When he did the, it, we I saw a star born in front of my eyes because he didn't pop right away. I did before him, before him, before Adam, before David. I popped, and there was like it was a weirdness going on there for a while. But when when Chris Farley did that dance, written by uh, the great, the real genius of Saturday Night Live is Jim Downey. And nothing to take away from Lorne Michaels. He protected the show and kept the 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 genius was keeping the network notes away and everything, protecting, giving us our little thing. And and then come and then continuing to find new people, luckily like me and Adam Sandler to keep the shows going and still doing it. But the comedy writing genius is Jim Downey, mm -hmm. and he saw in Chris Farley a way to show his physicality because he was really like a opera. He was like a ballet dancer in a four hundred pound body or three hundred twenty five pound <laughs> body, and there was a ballet dancer somewhere in there. And so he did that uh, that Chippendale sketch, which yeah. is like one of the most famous sketches there. And I sat there on the side watching that, laughing and laughing and going it's just it's impossible not to laugh at this thing it's just like if you look at it if you think of, i just watched recently some you know chaplin i mean just a chaplain uh, on a ladder figuring out how to fall down and there's a guy carrying it another guy did. it has that kind of physicality to it it's just you cannot you, if you don't laugh at that you have no sense of humor what i mean it sounds you know obviously when you think of pa uh, pagliacci and people like that that are so so funny and yet so self-destructive i mean do you I think there's something to that. I think it comes at a price. I mean, I will say, you know, another thing in the book, it, 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 it has some psychic damage. I mean, you have to be effed up to be in this business. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I literally like, you know, was, I was nice enough to talk to um, uh, this wonderful, um, this wonderful guy, you know, John Cleese, because I'm doing this TV show, Real Rob, on Netflix. And to me, like the, you know, the Mona Lisa of sitcoms is uh, Faulty Towers. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful, you know. And it, the, the, the producer at the time who, who produced that show, the British man has passed away. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on names. That's what happens with medical marijuana. The, um, <laughs> he said it's, it's um, the best sitcoms, or the best, the best situation comedy. The best situation comedy is uh, simply uh, horrible people acting horribly. <laughs> and it's true. 
He's a selfish, childlike guy, like, you know, lying and scheming and being too cheap and doing, putting in the door the wrong way and, you know, and then screwing it up and then having to hide behind it, lie, cheat, and steal. And that's just John Cleese and the physicality of it, having like a physical meltdown every show. Yeah. was like, it's just beautiful. And just like being abusive to his staff, you know, literally hitting him, hitting Manuel in the head with a, you know, a frying pan. It's like, just like, it's beautiful. To me, it's screamingly funny and, and, and politically incorrect. And I remember I went to go talk to him and Eric Idle after they were performing. I flew, I said, like, I asked my wife because I, I want to keep this marriage going. I have to make this marriage work because I really like my house. Beautiful. <laughs> You'd love it. You'd love it. It's like, my wife's great. My house, amazing. <laughs> anyway, so I asked my wife, I, like, I want to go see Eric Idle. And she's, you know, and John Cleese, they're mm. performing. And I said, I'm gonna, I'm, I want to leave tomorrow. She said, you know, she's always a go. You know, these are my heroes. She knows they're my heroes. So I flew out there, and this and John Cleese said, what, "What are you doing out here?" And I said, "I came to see you. What are you talking about? You guys, are, you're my heroes." And said, "Well, don't you, you know, come out and have a drink with us." And so went out, and he was couldn't have been more lovely. And Eric Idle, even more lovely than him. It's just these two like my heroes. And we're having some champagne together, and uh, and I was talking about you know. He was talking about John Cleese. He was talking about his mother. and said, "You should read my book, your mother." You know, because his mother would write a list of worries. She said, this is my list of worries. And she'd write it down. Because she survived she was through the war. She says, this is my list of worries. And so he would sit there when he was at university, and uh, she'd write and said, these are the things I'm worried about. And he'd write, she'd write them down. And that was his mother. And my mother the same way. See what happens? There's a little Filipino lady. Yeah. See what happens? You, brought, you fell down. See what happens? My whole life. See what happens? <laughs> you hurt, you're crying. See what happens? You fa- See what happens? You broke that. No rough housing in the house. I remember one time I played basketball about three miles away from the house. Somebody twisted an ankle. All of a sudden, you're, see what happens? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and I was talking to Eric Idle. I said, that, you know, now we're all, we're all left up. All of us. You know, we wouldn't do this if we weren't messed up. Simply is wrong with all of us. It's got to be. It's got to be screwless. It's got to be some psychic damage. So you think, like, with me, you know, my father survived World War Two. was coming home on the way home. Survived World War Two. The Germans, the Jerrys, coming back. Got hit by a tram. Was killed before I made it back to the house. So I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I, mean, I broke my heart right there. And, um, yeah, we're all messed up. So I think, like, you know, there is some, like, you have to risk yourself. To mm-hmm. be and put yourself out there and, and risk humiliation. To be able to risk humiliation, you have to be. And it comes at a psychic price. You know. You know the yes. average person doesn't walk down the street and say, "How can I potentially humiliate myself if this doesn't work?" Are and, you, you know what I mean? Are you a vessel? I mean, I find this even in in acting in the sense, and it's sort of like Peter Sellers too. You know, um, where when you finish, I was I'm working on a show and I was talking with an actor and I said. You know, do you do you enjoy the work or watching the work? And he goes, Oh, I never watch the work. And I said, Yeah, me too. Between action and cut is the only time it's really fun. And driving home when you're alone, you, you know. So I think with comedy, well, comedy, if I can separate, be... if I can separate myself from it, and yeah, and I can now. I didn't used to be able to. I used to just judge. You give so I don't think people realize the adrenaline. It's oh, not yeah. just coming up. I'm with exhausted. The no, no, no. It's... it's it's physically exhausting. If it's not, you're not doing it right. Yeah. You have to give everything on the floor. I remember, like, there's, there's very much, like, I mean, not that I'm comparing myself to any great athlete or anything, but, like, I remember talking to Larry Bird. I'm not talking to watching this, this show. Someone talking to Larry Bird, and it was Dr. J. I was saying, Larry, if you want to play a couple more years in this league, you're going to have to stop cleaning the court with your body because he's literally, like, leaping out of bounds trying to get the ball <laughs> falling on his back. You know, he literally, like, couldn't even sit down on the plane. That's why he stopped playing. He could still play, but he could have played, but, like, he'd hurt himself so much. And, and wow. he just went to Dr. J and said, I don't know any other way to play. This is the only way I know how to play. 
and like you have to commit to it and and it has it's it comes you know the thing is can you successfully turn it off when you're when you're not and truthfully it's hard to turn off some of it because it's so fun so yeah. it's just it's screamingly fun and like and sometimes i don't like to watch it after but there's sometimes i can watch the playback sometimes if I'm not trying to copy what I did, but just to make sure I'm physically in the right place. And the best directors don't tell you how to do a scene. They say, keep your, Robbie, keep your life between this pole and this couch, and I got you. And I go, okay, mm. this guy, trust me. Right. He knows that I know what I'm doing. Okay, good. He just, it's, he's not telling you that he trusts you, but he is. Yes. And, and then, so, the, and, but then you, you kind of keep it in there, and he knows what I'm doing, and I'm going to bring it, you know? Mm-hmm. You worked with uh, the director, uh, Dennis Dugan, very, a lot. A lot. Does he? Dennis is very positive. Um, you know, Jerry Lewis had his favorite. You know, like Norman Tarog, or do you have you know directors that really well, I mean, know I, you? I got to work with John Landis, and John Landis was like, "Oh, John Landis, that's one of the." I wanted to ask you about that. Susan's plan. Well, that was a movie that, like, he's a great director, and, fell through the cracks. But he's not a writer, and he wrote this, and he killed all the people that everybody in the movie that they liked, and that was just the movie that he wrote. And I was it was such a joy to work with him because he literally. If he likes something, he he loves it. He doesn't like it, he loves it. And if he does love it, he'll go, he'll run on it and say, I love it! <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's infectious. I wanted to start doing that. I don't know why I haven't. Then he would literally come out and just grab you and kiss you. I love it! And he just saw something in me that he just liked. And like, he, you know, it's a certain, the height thing and the certain kind of quirkiness. And he told me some great stories. And that's all you get to keep. You only get to keep stories. And um, he told me, because I was doing this onesie and he came up to me and said, ah, cut! Everybody, take five. And I go, Jesus, what did I do? He goes, hey, let me see. Rob, you were great in rehearsal. What happened? Oh, no. And I, and, 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 and I said, I don't know what I did. What's the difference? He said, well, let me just tell you something. He said, you're doing too much. Take it. It's just like enough. So let me just tell you, like, you know, back in the day, like, uh, uh, you know, Billy Wilder was, if you go on Sundays or Mondays at Musso Frank's, you can get the great Billy Wilder is at the bar eating dinner by himself. And if you're smart, like Quentin Tarantino was, or if I would see him, he would go and talk to Billy Wilder, and he would tell you a story or whatever, mm. if you felt in such the mood between right. bites. Well, when I came from Hungary, the thing was, I came from Mexico and came up here. <laughs> I worked with, you know, with this actors. And, and he'd tell you stories, whatever. And so uh, John Landis, also very smart, like Peter Bogdanovich, the great yes. director, he knew, let's talk to these guys. And, like, he interviewed everybody when he became a, a young, famous director. He did that great book called Who the Hell's In It, which mm-hmm. is still to this day, one of the great books about yeah. Hollywood, because who the hell's in it? You got to make a movie. You got to have a star. Who the hell's in it? And he went and interviewed everybody that he could. Mm-hmm. And so one of the guys he interviewed, and he did extensive interviews with, was of course Orson Welles. And Orson Welles is also, you know, John Landis became friends with Orson Welles. So there's the stories there. But the story about the he, to, to this point where I was being too big, and everything when I was being too big in the scene, he said, "Let me tell you a story about Billy Wilder." Billy Wilder came up to Jack Lemmon. I think it was in the apartment one. He said, said, Jack, Jack, could you do me a favor, please? Jack, can we take the take again? Can you do 50% less, Jack? 50% less. <laughs> and he said, uh, all right. So he does 50% less. He does another take, 50% less. And after, take. All right, Jack, can we do the take again? Jack, can we do it 50% less? 50% less. <laughs> he said, 50% less than what? Than that? Yes, Jack. Yes. <laughs> all right, all right. You know, he's starting to get irritated, you know. And so he does another take and says, Jack, can I do this? What? What? Uh, 50% less. F- then that? 50% less? Yes, Jack, 50% less. So he's starting to get irritated. So he, does, he does the take again. He says, Jack, can you do 50%? If I do another 50% less, I won't be doing anything. So try that. <laughs> mm. 
Are you sensitive to criticism? Uh, from oh, yes. A, I mean, that's, who isn't? But that seems who isn't sensitive to. You have to turn it off. I mean, like I would tell you, like the great John Cleese also told me that's you know, he told me once. He said, um, "Critics, don't even ignore them." Aww. Which was a quote from somebody I forget because I don't. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, you have to like if you're you have to understand their point of view. I remember like talking to you know the name dropping, but I've been around a long time. I was talking to James Cameron about like when after Titanic came out, it was a gigantic hit, and I met him a couple of years later through a mutual friend and they were at a dinner. And I said, I just want to tell you, nobody, no movie ever got shit on more than Titanic before it ever came out. Mm-hmm. So like, that's like unbelievable that you weathered that because people were rooting to rooting for that movie to bomb before it ever came out and like you know the pre-show disaster it's like it was totally unfair thing and you know of course you can relate to that because he lived through it he had to give back his salary or his points or whatever to keep going and he said yes but you know interesting interesting i learned something he said the thing about that movie was he said was like you would cynicism can only go so far and at its apex is love again so that's just really what that, that thing was. You know, and he, he told me stories about, um, you know, uh, DiCaprio talking him into doing that role. Because DiCaprio didn't, didn't get where they, he said, well, this guy could have his problems and be like a drug addict. And he said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Leo, you're Gary Cooper. <laughs> you're the opposite of that. You're like the best guy and, you know, the best purest guy. Yeah. And because that, that's the opposite of where DiCaprio really is kind of likes to play. Yeah. He found it challenging. That's why he wanted to do it. But anyway, my point was I was bringing about, about criticism. Was he remembered like uh, Kenneth Turan, um, you know, destroying this movie before it ever came out, and then hated it when it came out, whatever. And he said I was really angry. He said he said I was angry about that. And then I saw like some PBS thing or whatever where he showed him, and he said, oh. Basically, you know, he saw him, and they were like, oh, I get it. You know, it's a guy that like, you know, not the schlubbyish. I yeah. should say schlubby. And we're like, oh, I, well, you know, basically, I'd hate me too if I was that guy. Like, I get it. It's like that's not. That's that's not like a guy who's gonna root for you, mm-hmm. you know. And there's some actors who are like, you know, that are more, um, I should say, kind of weirder looking, and that they get amazing reviews. And I have to admit, a director told me, he said, "Well, you know, that's why I said they kiss this guy's ass. Why? Because that's them to them. That's the guy they can relate to. Schlubby, unshaven, doesn't take care of himself. That's who they're rooting for." And they were like, "Wow, I just it's just great to get that kind of." perspective so that you know because you do you could take it seriously you, I mean you think like when you make something you have to think it's great otherwise you can't make so you can't go ah this will be okay you have to think oh this is going to be amazing and then if it isn't doesn't quite hold up to whatever but comedies do not get reviewed well they just don't you got to know go that going in is that there is a you know combination of things going against you one is it's an aggressive thing and it's i'm going to make you laugh it's like yeah no you're not what do you mean and then you know Whereas opposed to a drama, a drama could be open to interpretation, but a comedy either makes you laugh or doesn't make you laugh. And then it goes exactly to people's egos. Mm-hmm. And the ego being like, you know, if you ask somebody, are you a good chef? You cook well? And some people be honest about that. No, I'm not really. I wouldn't find myself much of a great chef, you know. It doesn't get to the core of who they feel like they are. But if you ask somebody, do you have a good sense of humor? Mm-hmm. So, of course I do. Of course, that, that's a sign of great intelligence. Of course, I'm very intelligent. I have amazing sense of humor. <laughs> you should see. And not everybody has a good sense of humor. And so, you know, the difference is, you know, they, they feel like if they don't find it funny, they have to attack it and destroy it or in some sense So because they f- don't find it to be funny. So that's, it's just it's tougher. And you risk yourself when you like a comedy. You put yourself out there. 
You obviously, I mean, I don't know which movies to start with. There's so many. I mean, obviously, do you have your favorites that people, because oftentimes people are discovering films here. Well, they so. do. Like, I mean, for me, it's like uh, Big Stan was the movie that got lost for me, that, that mm-hmm. my career suffered for years after that. But in the same time, it's the greatest gift that ever happened in my life. So, I mean, it literally was the gigantic yep. disappointment because I lost money on that. And people, my, you know, people invested in the movie, lost money, and it was a tough. And I would literally hand deliver it to to Russia to get it released in Russia, in South Korea, wherever it was you could make possibly make money. Australia, I took it down there, and in Mexico, and, and every every Spain, because I wanted to get it out there for with my world audience, you know. And it just in America, you know, I was I, I got it up to to be released at um, this guy. Um, God, I mentally blocked his name out of my head. Um, Bob, uh, he did uh, the movie Crash. He produced it, and they, they kept him from getting an Oscar. What's his name? Can you look it up, somebody? Uh, I Is don't. Bob. But, but anyway, so he got the movie knowing he was going to go bankrupt. Really? And this and, was that? And, and held the movie. And I, I took everything. I, I got. I got it out of there. But by that time, Yari, Bob Yari, Bob Yari. Yeah. This guy. If I ever see him again, that's one guy I, I will hold a grudge against forever, <laughs> because he just he totally screwed the movie. So if you have a chance to not work with Bob Yari, I wouldn't do it. I would skip him. Skip Bob Yari. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> he uh, his company went belly up, and then um, unfortunately, like at that time, the DVD was like the DVD sales was the parachute for the film industry. And uh, I guess streaming is now. So anyway, it just we didn't get a good release for it, and so that was a real heartbreak. But the greatest thing, I mean, from from the ashes of failure, the greatest thing that ever happened in my life came from that. I literally was going around selling it, just trying to make sure my partners internationally didn't lose money, mm-hmm. the distributors, and um, uh, I met my wife on one of those things, and I have like two beautiful kids. So, in a sense, it was the greatest gift. Is that, you know, so sometimes, you know, there's two sides to everything. And, you know, I guess one of the things about being Zen is um, is to, you know, not focus on the side that you think is important. There's something else there. And you never know what's going to happen. So at the same time, you know, while like I'm really angry about that still, obviously, <laughs> I'm also grateful because, like I said, the most beautiful thing happened from that. that I love that movie. I think 51st Dates holds up as a sweet movie. Again. Yeah, very sweet. But again, though, it's like, you know, I don't know if some of that stuff they allow happen again. I just think it's like... I don't think there's malice intent. In other words, I think uh, the thing about Adam Sandler's comedy, which is always so, you know, is that there's he doesn't mean to be harmful or whatever, but there are certain people that that their funny things happen to. And I think that that's okay. And I think in life, if you take a look at the, the general cruelty in the universe and the world, I think there's a there's a, a great escape valve called Adam Sandler in his movies. And I was really happy that that was such a sweet little movie. And I just, oh, I remember being on the set, and that was the first time, when I walked on a set, and I, you know, work with like um, Tim Curry and and Home Alone, and I was the only movie I knew for sure was going to be a hit. Home Alone, Lost in New York. I said, well, this is going to be a hit for sure. But I remember walking on the set first day, you know, of Fifty First Dates, and seeing really handsome Adam Sandler sitting across from a very lovely Drew Barrymore in their prime, looking. I said, these are two movie stars. I'm in a movie with like movie stars, and I just remember thinking, God, this is special. This is really beautiful. And I remember like I'll never forget why I was. At that moment, I said, okay, this is great right now. You better remember this. So that's a special movie to me. I mean, to me, Deuce Bigelow was special because, you know, I didn't know how to make a movie, and I think that benefited me. 
mm-hmm. because I didn't know any rules. You know? Well, and uh, for for people who don't remember, how did you get the idea to do that movie? I well, it's like Ad- Adam Sandler had become like a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> like he was just the guy who lived across the street from me. I love I slept it. In guy. And then all of a sudden he became, and, and we were on Saturday Night Live again. And all of a sudden I go to Europe to make a couple of movies, and then I come back and he's a movie star. And he says, "Hey, won't you, you know, won't you do this this you know, part for me? You know, this maybe it's." Uh, it's uh, you know the water boy, and I said, well, uh, yeah, what is it? He said, hey, just say you can do it. And that's what, what does it mean? Now you, we'll, we'll tell you when you get here. And he said, you just come out, you'll have dinner. We'll do the same. We'll have a great dinner. So that was his, that was his whole thing was get me to come out to have dinner. So I came out to have dinner, and he had me do you can do it. And I was there for like a day. You can do it. Say definitely, you can do it. You can do it. You know, and then cut her head off. We got to win tomorrow. You know, the water boy's a cheater. So I just basically was like a lunatic for like a day. Yeah. And they cut me in different areas and shot it during the day, shot it at night, whatever, looking up, looking down. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really know what it was about or anything. But I did get a call two weeks before the movie came out and said, Robbie, it's Adam. Hey, and, you know, next week the water boy's going to come out and you're not going to be able to go anywhere without hearing, you can do it. So. <laughs> So that was uh, that one. And then, like, after that, he's, there was, like, um, a one line in a movie, uh, Big Daddy, and there's a Chinese uh, delivery guy. And because um, at the time, he didn't have any power in Hollywood. He was starting to become a movie star. He was a movie star. But, like, mm-hmm. the Waterboy hadn't come out yet. But, mm-hmm. like, they were making this other movie. The Waterboy came out and made $39 million in October, which no one had ever done that before. No one had ever done so. That's like, who's this guy? And so I was there that night that that opened, and then it kind of changed everything. But before that was Big Daddy was making it with Sony, and he and he said, "Hey, Robbie, want you to do this one role?" And they said, "I'll try, you know, I'll try to get that for you, but I don't, you know, I'll try." And then the studio said, "No," so they hired John Stewart for that role. He said, "This is now the role you can try to do." And they said, "You know, but you, you know," and he said, "You know, you're not really right for that role." And he said, "Don't worry about it, man. I love you. Don't worry. It's, it's great, and I appreciate it. You don't have to worry about." It. He said, "But this is other role, you know, and it's going to turn into something. Just come out and do it." And I look at the script. And it's like it's got okay, one line. It's Chinese. Eh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll change it. You know. So I had I went out there for one line, and he said, "Just come up, come tomorrow." I said, "Yeah, but I did my one line. Nah, but we'll figure out some more stuff." So I would show up, and Dennis Dugan, what a lovely, um, you know, guy would just like, you know, go, yeah, let's see what happens. And if it was working, he would say, yes! You know, so Dennis is one of those really positive, great guys. And then Adam would, we'd literally, the night before, call each other and go, I got this line for tomorrow. And so I'd show up the next day. The next thing you know, you know, the studio's getting, who's this guy showing up every day? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they kept it in and it ended up being one of the leads. And there was one line in it. So basically, you know, Josh, um, uh, Josh Mostel comes to the door and he's play, he's the social worker and goes, and I went to the door and I answered the door and said, you answer the door. So I, said, I opened the door and said, I, I, I know you, you all deserve three pieces of cheesecake. <laughs> and, um, you know, so they just kept the stuff in. And the next thing I know, I'm in this movie. So after that, that movie became, then Adam Sandler became a big star, a big hit. Waterboys went through the roof, $165 million, And the Big Daddy, $165 million. He said, the, so I said, he said, just write a movie. You know, and I'd write one. I said, I don't know what to write about. Just find something. You'll figure it out. So he said, okay, I'm still trying to figure it out. So I went and I, um, um, he said, write it. If it's good enough, I'll try to produce it. And I said, okay. You know, so I said, I don't know what to write. So I'm literally at my house in San Francisco, my little apartment. Uh, right on the cable, right on the hill with the cable car going by, ding, 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 and I'm, I'm flipping the channels, you know, by hand too, you know, back then. And then um, I see this movie and I go, let me just check this out. I think I know what this is. And it was Richard Gere, and I said, wait a minute, 
What is it? Oh, yeah, I know this. It's American, American Gigolo. It's a guy, and he's this handsome guy, and these beautiful women are paying him to have sex with them. And I said, this doesn't seem to make sense. <laughs> beautiful women don't need to pay anybody to have sex, so they just need to go and leave the window and go, sex? Where's? Who wants sex? You know? So I said, well, this is just innately funny. And I said, if I play some guy who's like, you know, like a, some guy... The, the lowest level I could think of in that in 30 seconds, which oh. is about how long I thought of the movie, about 30 seconds. Which is like, if I play some guy like cleans fish tanks for a living and sneaks into the guy's room and ruins his place and has to go out with these women, you know, his customers, and instead of them being great, like in that yeah. movie, they're, who would they really be? Who would really need to hire a gigolo? And it would be like, you know, a woman with one leg and Tourette's syndrome and another woman with <laughs> narcolepsy. And I thought, movie that you couldn't do it today, but at that time, they let us make it. It was originally called Deuce Baggio Male Prostitute. And I remember Joe Roth, the president of Disney, saying, Hey, kid, let me talk to you. It was at one of those you know, functions at Disney. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? He said, Yes, Mr. Roth, what can I do for you? Yeah, you got this movie. You only spent $12 million for a movie called Douchebag. Change that name. <laughs> yes, Mr. Roth. So I re- immediately went home. Wow. To my Hollywood Hills little house and decided how I can, how am I going to keep this house? Well, let me change the name. And I just thought, I thought of, you know, Ace Ventura and it would Deuce, you know, Ace, Deuce. Yeah. Deuce Bigelow, Male Jig Love. Just get rhymed, you know. So anyway, there wasn't, and then the next thing you know, that made like I don't know, three hundred eighty million bucks. But yeah. most of it in DVD after people heard about it. And if it's a funny movie, people will see it. And it was small enough where we were able to get to do some interesting stuff. And it was just what it was, you know. So that's a special movie. You know, the first thing that Amy Poehler ever did that anybody ever saw her in. Yes. Do I get a Christmas card? Do I get a call for Seda? Never. Never from Amy, but God bless you. <laughs> she was great in it. Because I thought that the part wasn't funny because they couldn't get anybody, any woman to make it funny. And then I was doing Conan O'Brien, and I saw this. She played like Conan's stalker, his sister or something with braces, you know, swearing at Conan. And I went like, wait, she's funny. So I said, well, this woman, she's funny. So Amy Poehler, so we got her to play the, the woman with Tourette's Syndrome. And um, very quickly, we had uh, Diedrich uh, Bader uh, oh, yeah. on. I worked, nice guy. Uh, and he had a Cloris Leachman right. story. I, I worked yes. with Cloris Leachman. I love Cloris. Do you have any? She's out of her mind in a way that we do I you just have any remember, Cloris Leachman stories. She was so stories? lovely. She would go around the set and tell people that they can't eat meat. It's horrible for you. <laughs> and tell them what it does to their lower intestinal tract. And she's right. She's like a 1,000. She's like in her 80s, and she's doing great. Um, do I have a, I mean, do, which, which story I put her in another movie. Cause I love, we all love her. I was talking yeah. to Adam, uh, la- last night. This is, this is Cloris Leachman. Last night where I was talking to Adam Sandler, he's took casting in the new movie. And I said, you know, Cloris Leachman, he said, no, I thought about her. And, um, you know, cause she's just one of those women you, you just think of. She's great. She's hilarious. First yeah. of all, if you see high anxiety. The only reason to really see that whole movie is how funny she is. Yeah. If you think about like young Frankenstein, the funniest person in that. It's Laura's Leachman. Yeah. She's hilarious and so funny and so committed. And then I, you know, she just, you, she dissolves in a role. She doesn't become, she dissolves her personality and she's just, and she's just brilliant. And anyway, so I said, you know, Cloris, can you come out and do this part for me in this movie? I was making a movie, The Animal. She said, yes, I'd love to come out and do that. You take me to dinner. And I said, okay. So we went out and had a great <laughs> time. And, and then uh, we did the role. And then the studio big studio movie at the time and most money ever made in my life and they'd like you know decided uh, we need to cut some time out of this movie we want to keep it real quick and so I had to call Cloris she said hi Cloris how are you she said I can hear it in your voice what you cut me didn't you <laughs> and I said not out of the DVD <laughs> <laughs> you're still in the DVD you have that dream going for you but I um, there's, there's like there's many there's, Cloris Leachman has, has like um you know, she's she's incredible. Yeah, 
She's, she's just a, just a work of she remembers everything. I have such a terrible memory. But her and, and like David Carradine, which would tell me such incredibly detailed stories. I wish I had recorded them all. You know, it's when you're telling your stories. Can I just mentally jot this down or physically? You know, just incredible stories, and that's all you get to keep. You know, it's like, um, you know, um, and she's she's able to do incredible things. So I mean, and it's a, it's a, unfortunately, you know. You age out of this business, and it's like you got to work while you can, and and do do what you can. And, and if you're lucky enough, first of all, any every as you know, every movie's a miracle. Yeah, every, every movie's impossible to get made, and it's impossible to make it good. It's impossible to get the cast you got. And like sometimes you get lucky. You can have all the money in the world. You can have ah the greatest scriptwriter. You can have the greatest casting, still be a piece of crap. So you just never know. It's that's why it's it's a beautiful thing. It's like you know what Orson Welles described. Like I've fallen in love with an expense. I'm a painter who's fallen in love with an expensive canvas. <laughs> do you uh, do you as was reported? You got a Maserati for being in a film. Did, I have one now. <laughs> no, but Adam Adam Sandler actually bought me. He knew that I was a, you know environmentally conscientious, so he bought me um, the, the first Tesla. The first ones off the wow. pretty pretty nice. He That's gave everybody else Maseratis because they don't care about the environment. Oh. But you, so you <laughs> had a te- movie grown-ups, yeah. I think I'd prefer a Tesla. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. I still have it. Will there be a uh, grown-ups number three? Negative. I don't think so. No, I wasn't really? into. I regret it a little oh. bit, but I wasn't. But my wife is having a baby, and like truthfully, like truthfully, to be honest, thinking about show business and stuff, like I'm about to do a bunch of wave of movies that I haven't done movies in like in in, in years, and the next few of the years I'm going to make, I'm going to make a bunch, I think, of several of them, because I think, but it was, I mean, truthfully, I always asked myself, or thought to myself, like, I don't get it. Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, Music of My Mind, he did like five incredible albums, like double albums, like, you know, Songs in the Key of Life, and Music of My Mind, these are incredible, stuff. and they're like, that was it. It's like, what? The Beatles together, you know, 10 years total of making albums, seven years, that's it. You know, Paul McCartney, of course, the most prolific rock yeah. guy ever, made the greatest voice, the greatest, you know, you know, rock and roll performer ever. But like, and I think like, well, what happens? And I, and I kind of understand, like, your art, your life becomes your art. And like, I literally like, I like, I couldn't do two because, you know, grown-ups too, because my wife's having a baby. It's like, I miss too much. I miss too much as my first child. And I, I'm paying the price for that, you know, and trying to be close to her now. And, um, you know, God bless her. And she's a terrific, terrific entertainer and, and a wonderful. I uh, never wanted her to be in entertainment because of the ups and downs of it. But she's, I think music is a more beautiful, rewarding thing for her. You mm-hmm. know, that for me, I'm not regretting being a life in show business. But my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Elle King, and she's doing great. But I, I, I have to admit, like, I miss too much. And I really regret that. And I apologize to her for missing so much. And, like, I don't want to miss anymore. And, like, so I have these two little kids. And it's like, you know what? If I don't make as many movies, I got a couple that I'm really proud of, and I'll try to make a couple of more. But like, th- you know, it's just you know, last night being there for my kid falls asleep to me is like that is more beautiful. I'm more proud of that and the family relationship than and you can a movie. So I really do get, the, and I don't want to sacrifice um, that. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's like that's too much a price to pay to miss that for you know to be in my trailer 
between <laughs> between shots, <laughs> eating out of styrofoam. People think it's so glamorous. You know how glamorous? Yes. And then, then you're out there. I had a 15-hour day. It's like two days in a day. But it is lovely to see like young people lose their infatuation and love for show business. I was in, I was doing a movie with Jean-Claude Damme. Jean-Claude Damme. Jean-Claude, <laughs> I'm sorry, I skipped out something. It's Jean-Claude Damme. If you're in a hurry, Jean-Claude Damme. If you're not in a hurry, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I think his real name is Wusterhoosh, but you know, Van Damme is his cousin. I got to meet the real cousin who he, he chose the name on. So I'm doing this movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme out yes. in, in Hong Kong. I'm literally out there. We're driving. Uh, Moshe Diamant was the uh, <laughs> producer. And we're on, a, we're on a boat, small little boat, to save a little bit of money for the production. And we're getting out. In the middle of a monsoon starts. The monsoon... Uh, we were shooting in June in Hong Kong with the monsoon season, and monsoon hits while we're in the middle of the water. And like the little, the, the boat has no navigational system. The navigational system was the wife of the boat driver being in the front of the boat, steering on. They start and just like you know, which is actually that's real Cantonese, by the way. Lehoma means how are you? But um, <laughs> so we're watching this, and then Moshe's like, "Have you got to get a bigger boat?" And I went, "Yeah." Of course we do, you cheap bastard. But uh, you know, I, I had a good time on, on that film. But I'm out there. We're driving to this, like, dry dock. I'm shooting this thing. And, uh, you know, the, it's just insanity. You know, we had, like, uh, it rained, and then, like, the the lighting, the whatever you call it. What the heck is the, um, that we're plugging into this, you know, this uh, generator. generator out there. And it, it just like, exploded on us. It's just like, not on us, but it, it like, because yeah. it's water and the cords and everybody's jumping around and going, am I going to get electrocuted shooting this movie? <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, I die on this thing? And I just remember this one lovely girl. She was half Chinese, half American from Boston College. And she's just the smartest whippersnapper of a kid. And she was in her 20s. And she just looked at me and she, said, and she was like one of the PAs in the movie. She looked at me and said, I just love movies. I just love making movies. I mean, so if I see a movie and I'm not working on it, I feel depressed. It's like I want to work on. I just love movies. I can't. Not, I can't see myself doing anything else but working on movies. I just that's how much I love movies. I just want to be part of the creative process. Excuse me for a second. Yeah, that was that was 15 fish and rices, 15 <laughs> chicken and rices. Yeah, 15 to chicken and rices. Yes, Fift, and then 15 fish. Yeah, you say you know. And then like, so like, I just love making movies. Oh, you, you're ordering fish and. <laughs> and, and rice in styrofoam bags. You know, this is the, this is your, you know. But, like, God bless them. You have to yeah. have people excited to be there. And that's my rule. Yes. You're working on a picture with me, and I hope you do soon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we've never did, been in a movie together. I don't want anyone who's not excited to be there, but I don't want anyone who's too excited to be there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the rule. Ileana, that's the you got to know that. That's on All the right. board. That's on the board. Okay, I will keep that in mind. Rob Schneider. A thrilled to have you on. Please come back. Please come back. Thank Anytime. you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you got to get me out of my shell so I There's can tell some stories. There's at least like <laughs> 10 questions <laughs> that Ileana did not ask. So We'll do it again. Yeah. It's yeah, my pleasure. We need to have you back. And we loved your you win best entrance. Yes, you do. Yes, I hope so. Winner! Thank you. Best entrance. Look for Robin. Real Rob on Netflix. See him doing stand-up everywhere starting in the next couple of days. He's on Twitter at Rob Schneider. Yes. And on Instagram at I am Rob Schneider. My wife's also and, on there. Yes, I am Patricia she, Maya. She's. You can find her right there. You can just click her right there. Yes, thank you. And uh, his website is robschneider.com. Thank you, uh, Rob. This was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, uh, enjoyed this. Uh, initially, it's <laughs> some wild stuff, Ileana. You can uh, also buy Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, yes, on Amazon and in bookstores. Oh, I got stories about Dennis Hopper. Also. 
Well, then you're coming back. Okay. You're coming come back, back at the end of the okay. summer. We'll um, also, check out our website, ilianaspodcast.com, and like us on yes. Facebook. Yes, and as we always, please come back. Uh, it was I, I, I enjoyed laughing for the past couple hours. Yes. As we always end our podcast, everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is the end of our podcast. But not today. necessarily in that order. Right. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Exactly. Gotta, I'm working on my third act. Is, uh, uh, who knows which way this movie's going to end? But anyway, thank you, Rob. It's been thank uh, you. It's fun. so, so thank, much fun I'm seeing you. Honored to have, honored to be have uh, here. Thank many, you. many congrats <laughs> for a great career, continued success. Thank have you. a great day, everyone. Thank you. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.